So today we turn a corner in the confession. For those of you visiting, what we're doing is we're taking this opportunity to go through the 1689 Confession of Faith before we officially adopt that as the teaching position of the church. Our norm is to preach systematically through books of the Scripture, not that that's the only way you have to do it, but we think exegetical preaching is the way that it should be then, and we think systematically through books is the best way to do it because then it gets the church the whole counsel of God, that the preacher can't avoid those hard texts that he may not want to deal with. And so we turn this corner in the confession. If you remember in chapter 7, we had this focus upon God's covenant. And then if you were paying attention, what happened was all the way through chapter 20, it was just a fleshing out of different aspects of God's covenant. There was this kind of foundational chapter, and then the further chapters just expounded upon that. And so today we come to chapter 21 on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And what this chapter does is it actually serves sort of as a heading all the way up to the chapters um, 30 in the confession. So they're really, those chapters are going to be an expansion of what God-centered living looks like and then the freedom and boundaries associated with that. And when you saw the topic Christian liberty, that may be way more expansive than what you had in mind that we would be talking about today. And so most people today, when they think of Christian liberty, they think about, it's going to ask questions like, can I smoke, can I drink, can I chew, or can I go with girls who do? It's going to be those types of things, right? Like, do I have the liberty to partake of those things that I want to partake of in my flesh? Or maybe not even in my flesh, but are permissible for Christians. The focus is upon me and what I want. That's what happens in most people's discussions about Christian liberty. And so it's true, and we're going to get to this. God's Word answers those questions or can give you principles to answer those questions. But what we're going to see in the confession is that's not at all where the focus is upon the confession or even in Scripture about what Christian liberty entails. And so Sam Waldron, in his exposition of the confession, gives just kind of a summary statement on the context of this paragraph. And I think it'll frame for us, and why the importance of this? Why did the confession even have to have such a verse or such a chapter? So it says, ecclesiastical totalitarianism, civil totalitarianism, and the perverse reactionism are some of the factors which form the historical backdrop of this chapter. The Roman Catholic Church claimed excessive authority over the consciences of Christians. It demanded men believe its pronouncements without scriptural verification and assume the right to make law which added to the word of God. This was only part of the problem. The Reformed churches were caught in a terrible crossfire. There was a centuries-long conflict being fought at the time of the Reformation between those who thought that the church was the supreme authority and those who thought the state was the final human authority. Even many of the reformers were influenced by the second viewpoint. To save themselves from the domination of the Roman Pope, they put their churches under the protection and authority of civil rulers. In contrast to both extremes, reformed Christianity insisted on the doctrine of Christian liberty. They taught that neither church nor state possessed total authority for the Christian. And so, I think that helps us to get a little more holistic view of what we're talking about when it comes to Christian liberty. And I think if we want to make practical application to where we're at in America today, I think if the average Christian was studied and informed on what Scripture says about this issue, 
I think the church would have had a vastly different response a few years ago to all the COVID vaccine and mask mandates. Because I think that the church didn't grasp these truths about who, who is the final authority in the sake of these issues of liberty for the Christian. And so our outline today is just going to be based upon the three paragraphs of this chapter. First, we're going to look at Christian liberty defined. And secondly, we're going to look at the boundaries of Christian liberty. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the corruption of Christian liberty. So we're going to define it. We're going to look at the boundaries of it. Then we're going to look at how it can be corrupted. And so before we jump into God's word, let's pray and ask for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Christ. Lord, I come confessing for myself, and I think this is true of probably everybody in this room, that, Lord, we haven't studied, we haven't thought through these issues of Christian liberty as we should. So Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, right any wrong understandings that we have just about Christian liberty itself, and Lord, help us to examine any areas of our lives where we've used this um, Christian liberty as a license for sin, or an area where we've used it as a... Um, or as a means of legalism for ourselves, or maybe for others. I pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, so paragraph one is actually divided into two different parts. We're going to take um, this, this first little section on its own. The, the liberty of Christ, has, the liberty Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel is found in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the severity and curse of the law. It also includes their deliverance from this present evil age, bondage to Satan, the dominion of sin, the suffering of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. In addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to Him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and willing mind. And so, I hope you can see that Maybe your preconceived notions about Christian liberty, you don't find them anywhere in this first paragraph that actually defines what Christian liberty is. We're going to start with Luke um, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. This is Jesus quoting from Isaiah, who prophesied his coming. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here we see this, this, this term liberty. In, here in Thayer's Greek definitions, we, we can see this. What, what's the meaning of this term in the Greek? So it's a release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins, meaning letting them go as if they'd never been committed, or remission of that penalty. And so this was the liberty Christ was sent to proclaim, and this was the liberty Christ was sent to procure, to purchase for his people. And so when we talk about this issue of Christian liberty, what we have to understand is that that it flows from and stands on the foundation of Christ's cross work. And the confession lays out these six magnificent statements related to this freedom that was purchased by us is given to us in Christ. So first of all is the freedom from the guilt of sin. So we all, if you're in Christ, you recognize that outside of Christ, you stood guilty and condemned before a holy God. As James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. 
And so even if you go talk to someone on the street who wants to say, hey, I'm a good person, they would even have to acknowledge, well, yeah, I failed in at least this one point of keeping the law. And what God's word says is you fail one, you've failed the covenant of work, so you're condemned by a just and holy God. Matthew 2.1, speaking of Mary, says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why is that? For he will save his people from their sins. So this was a primary part of Jesus' cross work, was to come and give us freedom from the guilt of sin. And the second truth that we see here is that we're given freedom from the condemning wrath of God. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So by nature, we were children of wrath. We were not good people. We were not people seeking after God. We were children of wrath. So as descendants of Adam, that's our nature. We were objects of God's settled indignation. John 3.36, here we have the good news. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So you have two choices. You can believe in the Son, have eternal life, have the wrath of God taken from you, or you cannot believe in Christ You cannot receive eternal life and have the wrath of God remaining upon you. That's a clear testimony of Scripture. Then this third truth that we see of things that we're freed from, we're freed from the severity and curse of the law. So part of the purpose of God's law is to condemn us, to show us that we cannot keep it and thus we need a Savior. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law By becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so we talked about this at the men's meeting yesterday. The Mosaic Covenant, a covenant of works. It was do this and live. Do this and receive blessing from God. The new covenant is live. Be born again and do this and then live. It's Repent and believe the gospel because you've been born of the Spirit, that you've been given a new heart, made a new creation in Christ. His law has been put upon your heart. You actually desire and are enabled to keep it. And so now live in light of that truth. Those are, those are diametrically opposed to one another. And so we have now freedom from the severity and curse of the law because this law has now been written upon our hearts. And we actually want to, with, our, with the, the utmost feeling of our heart, we want to obey this law that once condemned us. And not only that, we're indwelled by the Spirit and empowered to, in that obedience of the law. Then the fourth truth that we see here in the confession is that we have deliverance from this present evil age, bondage to Satan, and the dominion of sin. So we have freedom from our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've not only been freed from the guilt of sin, but we've been freed from the power of sin as well. The old man is being put to death and being replaced by the new. Satan has been bound and his house plundered, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we're no longer enslaved 
by this desire to be conformed to this world, but we've been given the mind of Christ, which we renew by God's word to become more and more into his image. And then the fifth truth related to this freedom is that we've been delivered from the sufferings of afflictions. Notice what the confession doesn't say. It doesn't say that the Christian's not going to encounter suffering, afflictions, trials, distress, and persecution. Instead, we're delivered from the suffering or the evil of those afflictions. And so what the confession is saying is that, yes, in this life, the Christian will suffer. The, the Christian will have affliction, but we're not going to suffer. We're not going to have afflictions like the unbeliever because we're going to know God's ultimate purpose behind those things. We heard this in our scripture reading in Romans chapter 8. This is verses 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so what we know is that all the suffering, all the affliction in our life is brought intentionally by God not as a wrathful judge, but as a loving father for the purpose of making us more into the image of his son. And so even in the midst of that, the, the, the deepest and darkest trial and affliction, we can trust in God's purposes in that. And so in that sense, the evil of those afflictions have been removed from us. And so most of the time, we don't get to see the purpose of those afflictions, right? I mean, we, we may be struggling with, with sickness, cancer, whatever it is for an extended period of time. It's not like God usually shows us, oh, hey, this is, this is what I'm working in you. This is, this is what the result's going to be. Often it's only way after we get through that trial that we could look back and go, okay, yeah, I can kind of see what you were doing there, Lord. And what you have to do in the midst of that is be able to trust him and say, I don't see how that this is working, Lord, but I trust you as the sovereign God of the universe that it is. And so... In addition to our freedom, Christ has purchased and secured our adoption as sons. So what that means is that we're no longer dealing with God in such a way that we are his enemy and he's against us, but rather he is a father who loves us and is for us, working every trial for our good. And then the last truth that we see here of things that we're freed from is we have deliverance from the fear and sting of death the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see not only have we been freed from the guilt of sin, not only have we been freed from the power of sin, but if we're in Christ, we've been freed from the punishment of sin. We no longer fear death and damnation, but we look forward to everlasting life and reward. And so those, I think, are six wonderful and glorious statements about the things that we've been freed from in Christ. And then the confession gives us two things that we have been freed to. 
It says, in addition, it includes their free access to God and their obedience to him, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and a willing mind. So first we see that Christ has purchased for us free access to God. That's something that if you're an American Christian, you probably just take for granted that you may not even think about. We see in Mark 15, verses 37 and 38, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament history, if you've done as Andy Stanley has recommended, unhitching your faith from the Old Testament, you might be like, what, what in the world is the significance of this? I mean, first of all, it's significant that it's torn from the top to the bottom, right? Because it's showing that it's God doing the tearing, that this is a supernatural thing that's happening here. And, and why would that even matter? Well, the writer of Hebrews, or the preacher of Hebrews, helps us to see the significance of this event. This is Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And so the writer of Hebrews assumes you know your Old Testament, assumes you know the book of Leviticus and the fact that the high priest could only come in to the Holy Holies once a year. He would come in once a year, entering in the presence of God and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant as an atonement for sin. So once a year, one man has access to the presence of God. But then with the inauguration of the new covenant, Jesus comes and sheds his blood once for the sins of his people. And now through Jesus Christ, we have access to God, the Holy of Holies, not just one man one day, once a year, but each one of us, anytime, any place, we have that intimate access to God, that we can come into his presence at any time with confidence. Spurgeon said this, having such a privilege as this, let us not neglect it. It was denied to prophets and kings in the olden time, but now that it is vouchsafed to us, let us avail ourselves of it and constantly let us draw near unto God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So again, I think probably a lot of you never even thought about that reality. Like you know that that's true that you have access to God, but you never thought, man, I go back and look at redemptive history and Israel didn't have that. National ethnic Israel didn't have that access in the way that we do. That, that's a wonderful, magnificent change in the inauguration of the new covenant. So next, the confession says that we were freed to obedience to God. So the natural man, the typical American, it, if you talk about freedom and obedience in the same sentence, it seems like those things should be contrary to one another. Right, but, but not so with freedom in Christ. So, the, so th this is important. If, the, if you only get one thing from today, this should probably be it. The heart of Christian liberty is not a freedom to follow after our own wills. It's a freedom to follow Christ and his commands. Let, so let's get that. Most people, when they think of Christian liberty, think, hey, this is freedom for me to follow what I want to do. What the Bible is going to tell us is, no, Christian liberty is being free to do what God has commanded for us to do. That that's a radically different way to understand Christian liberty. So Jonathan Edwards said, true liberty consists only in the power of doing what we ought to will and not in being constrained to do what we ought not to will. 
I mean, the reality is that America is quickly turning into a totalitarian state. I don't think anybody can deny that. But the reality is we have so many freedoms that we still take for granted. I mean, we t- like, like the, in the context of the confession, you know, going back, looking at the time of the Reformation, when the, you know, people's consciences were being bound by the Roman Catholic Church, by the civil magistrate, all those things. We honestly, like sitting here right now in Allen, Texas, we don't really have so much of that going on yet. But, but the reality is we can kind of look and see, hey, it's probably coming. And, and that's why this may be a really important thing for us to understand um, because, yeah, I don't, I don't think all the mass mandates and all those things from a few years ago, I don't think that was an aberration. I think that this is the direction that our government wants to take us. And so we need to understand, hey, how do we respond in those sorts of circumstances? And so the confession then describes the nature of this obedience, which I think is wonderful. It says, not from slavish fear, but from a childlike love and willing mind. And so what it's trying to help us to see is that as a Christian, you're no longer obeying God basically out of slavish fear to a harsh master, but it's with a childlike love and willing mind to a loving father. You know, I think... Hopefully, if you're a child in here and a dad in here, not that you do this perfectly, but hopefully you can kind of start to get this. I know many of us didn't grow up with the greatest home life and dads, and maybe there's a disconnect with what this looks like. But, man, it's just awesome to see, like, a little child just like, yeah, I'm going to obey because that's what my dad said to do. Obviously not that children, especially if they're unregenerate, do that perfectly, but even the unregenerate child would be like, yeah, that's what I've been taught. I can obey, and there's something about that um, that's just beautiful. Al Martin said this, when then, what then is the nature of true liberty? Not being free to do anything you want to do, but in coming to a place where you delight in the performance of what you ought to do. And that's key right there. And so, what we've done is we've walked through all these wonderful freedoms that we have, that we've been freed from in Christ and we've been freed to in Christ. And I just want to address you today, if you sit here today outside of Christ, maybe you hear all that and you don't even care. Well, you still need to repent and believe the gospel. But maybe there's someone here that, man, that, that pricks your conscience. You're like, and I don't have all that stuff that you just talked about, Pastor. I don't have that at all. And, and I would like to have that. I wish that I had freedom from the guilt and the power and punishment of sin. I wish I had the freedom to not see God's law as this begrudging thing that my mom and dad keep telling me that I have to do, but I actually would like to do that thing. Then don't overcomplicate the gospel. What the gospel, said, what the gospel is is that Christ came and lived the perfect life for you that you could never live. He came and took the wrath for you that you justly and rightly deserve. He proved that he was who he said he was by being raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding from us as our high priest. It's a simple, concise summary of the gospel there. And then what the gospel requires is, it was the very beginning words of both Jesus and John the Baptist's ministry. Repent, turn from your sins, and believe in the gospel. Trust in that. That's the simplicity of the gospel. So if you sit here today, young person, older person, and you don't believe those things, that's that's what God calls you to do. Repent, turn from your sins, receive the freedom. All those freedoms that I've been talking about in Christ are available for you, sitting here for you to receive. 
So now we move on to the second part of paragraph one, which answers the question, is this freedom that we've been talking about in Christ unique to believers after the inauguration of the new covenant? Basically, hey, we've been talking about all these truths. We look back at texts like Hebrews 11. We look back at the Old Testament and go, hey, did those Old Testament saints, did they have the same thing? Like, what did that look like? So the confession goes through it and tries to answer that. So it says, all these liberties were also enjoyed in their essence by believers under the law. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. They are free from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish congregation was subjected. They have greater confidence of access to the throne of grace. And they have a fuller supply of God's free spirit than believers under the law usually experienced. And so, the Old Testament saints that are described by the confession as believers under the law, because they were not only partakers of the promises of the new covenant, but they were also under the old covenant. They were also under the Mosaic covenant as well. And again, we talked about this in chapter 7 of the confession. Um, you know, you could go back and listen to that if you weren't here. If you're a man, get the book that we just spent like four and a half hours over the last few months walking through in, in a lot of detail uh, of that reality. That what we believe Scripture teaches is that people were saved under the old covenant, but they weren't saved by the old covenant. Do you see that distinction? That the Presbyterian view would be, hey, there's one covenant of grace with two administrations, the old and the new, and so people were saved, you know, in the same way. I mean, literally, I read a quote from a Presbyterian yesterday from the book that saying, hey, the, the, the promises, the gospel, everything the same under the old and the new. And I don't see that at all in Scripture. What I see is, yes, there was Old Testament believers that were here. They weren't saved by anything to do with the Mosaic Covenant. They were saved by believing in that promise that was first given in the garden in Genesis 3.15. Hey, there's a Messiah coming that's going to come, the seed of the woman that's going to come and crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I, I, I believe that Adam, at that time, could have recognized that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah alone. I think all the Old Testament saints knew at least that. We could debate, okay, how much light did they have, especially as redemptive history unfolded, but they knew at least that, that they were looking for salvation, not meritorious of themselves, by the work of another through faith in what that person would do. And so, what it says is that they enjoyed the essence or the substance of all those freedoms that we've just gone through. How do we know that? Well, part of the answer is pretty simple. These freedoms are part and parcel of what it means to be in Christ, I mean, really, at the base of it is that simple. You see in Galatians 3.9, Paul says, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what do we see there? We see our faith didn't originate at the coming of Christ, but it began with that promise that I just spoke of given in the garden to Adam and Eve, and then continued in that, in that unfolding of redemptive history recorded for us in the Old Testament with, with men like Abraham, and it continues all the way with us today. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so, I think it's clear, yes, all the Old Testament saints enjoyed the same freedoms that we have in Christ. But as the confession says, under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further expanded. One of the ways that it stresses that that, that is different is, as we have been freed from this yoke of the ceremonial law. Because what's the truth? We had all this law in the Old Testament. 
What was its purpose? Yes, it was to keep the holy people from which the Messiah would come, right? But where did all those things point to? They all pointed forward to the Messiah that was to come, right? They're all fulfilled in Christ. With the coming of Christ, all those ceremonial laws go away. They were types and shadows, and the antitype has come. So yes, we know we have the Passover lamb. That had re- it was real. It served a purpose in its time. But the ultimate purpose was in Christ, done away with. The high priest in the temple served a real purpose in its time, but it's gone away now that the coming of Christ has come. The temple, the physical temple, served a purpose in its time, but it's gone. What does the New Testament say is the temple? It's Christ and us in Christ, right? That's why any view of the end times that has you building a physical temple and people offering sacrifices to God that are somehow pleasing to him is antithetical to the sufficiency of the gospel, right? If Christ died once for all, what in the world are those animal sacrifices going to be doing in that future temple? I would say if that actually happens, that'll be nothing but a blasphemy against God. And so, James Renahan um, summarizes this issue this way. He says, how is this? Because our access is through Christ. We are no longer subject to ceremonial uncleanness, required to follow prescribed rituals to qualify for worship. When we sin, we need not bring an offering to a priest so that we might be restored. We see all those things had their purpose in that day, but they're no longer binding upon the Christian today. So we, we have additional liberty, not having to keep those ceremonial laws. But not only that, we see after Pentecost, God's people experienced the Spirit in a greater way. Here's two texts from John's Gospel that deal specifically with that. John 7, verses 30 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. In John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we see John speaking here in, or Jesus speaking in John's gospel. These are future things, right? There was believers here at that time, but they hadn't received the Spirit in the same way they did at Pentecost, in the same way that we do. And so we talked about this in the men's meeting yesterday. This question kind of came up, and I said, even within sort of the Reformed church, there's going to be different understandings of the work of the Spirit in the life of the Old Testament saint and the work of the Spirit in the life of a New Testament saint. I said, what I like to do with theological issues like this is you want to take the big picture of what we know from Scripture, right? Here's a couple of things I think we know. One, all the Old Testament saints were regenerated by the Spirit. How do we know that? Otherwise, none of them would have been saved because we know what the Bible teaches about the natural man, about the depravity of man, right? None of them would have actually come to believe the gospel. So, hey, we know Old Testament saints regenerated. What else do we know that we just saw? Hey, there's something different, right? The, the Spirit was, was going to be given in some different way than the Old Testament saints had, right? And so the, the way that I would phrase that is, I think that New Testament Christians are all of us indwelled with the Spirit, and that wasn't the normative situation with the Old Testament saints. So I think that is where the difference falls. And so I think what we see is that in the temple, in the tabernacle, we had God's presence, his Shekinah glory, specifically dwelling there. Right, and what, in the New Testament, where is the temple? Christ and then us. And I think that, that glory now indwells us. So I, think that's, I think that's the distinction. I think scripture doesn't give us 
a lot of details of exactly what that means, but, but I, think, I think that's at the heart of what we're talking about of this difference. So, so the Old Testament saints, they, they had all these blessings, all these things that they were saved from, but, but it just paled in comparison to what we have now. So it was similar, like in seed form, and then now all of us in Christ have those things. So I think that that's a very thorough definition of Christian liberty. So now let's turn to paragraph two and look at the boundaries of that liberty. For God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word and not contained in it. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. Requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. So, when before the last 30 minutes, if someone would have brought up the idea of Christian liberty, this is probably what would have come to your mind, right? Like these, these sorts of things here. But what we see is that when we get to the, the issues that we're going to talk about here in, in paragraph 2, they stand upon the bedrock and foundation of all those truths that we just spent all that painstaking time going through in paragraph 1. All right, Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. For he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So, we're not the master of our neighbor's conscience. Most of us will probably go, okay, yeah. But we're not even the master of our own conscience. God is the one that is the master of both ours and our neighbor's conscience. God is the only judge of morality. There are many, many ways that we can try to bind the conscience of our neighbor. And the confession gives kind of two primary ways that this happens in the professing church. The first is what it refers to as implicit faith, which is requiring someone to believe that what we teach is the Word of God without proof from the Word of God. So basically it's saying, this is, this is true, this is from God, but I'm not actually going to give you, you know, Scripture to back that up. And the next would be absolute and blind obedience, which would mean requiring someone to obey our commands as if they were the commands of God himself, so they have to obey absolutely and without scriptural proof that they are the commands of God. So to do so blindly. And as I said, I think within the circles most of us have, have been swimming in for some period of time, probably not as big of an issue. I know there's people in the church that came out of Roman Catholicism, huge issue. There's people that came out of an independent fundamentalist background, huge issue with these things. So it's not that, that we're devoid of that, but it's not as big of an issue as it would have been, I think, say in the 1600s, where, where most people in the church would have, have experienced this uh, personally. But the Roman Catholic Church at that time, and up to the present day, seeks to be the Lord of conscience of its followers. So that Roman Catholic Church has certain doctrines that you have to believe by faith. Just saying, hey, I'm a Roman Catholic. If you actually... If if you actually held to those things, they would say, you must believe this. If you don't believe those things, you're not actually a Roman Catholic, is what the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church would say. But 
Roman Catholic Church has a pope today that I don't even think believes those things. So that's a whole separate issue. But technically, hey, you're supposed to have to believe all these things to be a Roman Catholic. It's not, it's not optional. It's not like a smorgasbord where, oh, I'll take this and that. No, you have to believe all these things because the church has said that these things are true. And I looked online, and there's actually 255 infallibly declared dogmas of the faith that Catholics have to believe. I just pulled a couple of them so you could get an idea. One would be the bodily assumption of Mary, which that means Mary was assumed both body and soul in the same way or similar to what Elijah or Enoch would have been, right? That she didn't die in the way that we die. And then another one would be the affirmation of purgatory, that to be a Roman Catholic, and I know you may talk to your Roman Catholic friend, and they not, may not believe any of the, either of those things, but the truth is to be a Roman Catholic, they actually have to believe those things by faith. And if you know, the priests and cardinals or whoever were actually faithful to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, they would tell them that. But you know, the, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church is just as woke as you know, many of the, uh, the evangelical churches today. And so these are cases where no biblical support is offered or even could be offered, but yet the church binds the consciences of all its members with those things. And as I mentioned earlier, hey, there's some Protestant churches that go off the rails in this area as well. And so, like the independent fundamentalist Baptists would be one, but they're not the only ones for sure. We have churches that want to dictate specifically what you can wear, what you can watch, what you can eat, what you can drink, who you can date, what movies you can watch. And so, by doing those sorts of things, they're binding the conscience of Christians in the same way that Rome is binding the, fo- binding the consciences of its followers. James Renahan says this, he says, As soon as we submit to human laws and religion, we lose our freedom in Christ. He alone has a right to command what he wills, and no one may add to his commands. So it's not to say that all those circumstances that I mentioned that you can't apply biblical truth to those things, right? You can assess modesty for a lady without having to dictate the length of a a skirt, right? Those, those things are not mutually exclusive. And then, for example, when we're talking about who to date, well, I would say it's real clear from Scripture that if you're a Christian, you ought not to date an unbeliever because you, the purpose of dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, is actually to see if you should marry this person. And I can tell you if you're a believer, the answer is already no if it's an unbeliever. So you ought not to even start down that road, right? But then we can move over and talk about, okay, let's see what the Bible says about wisdom in this issue, should the you know is it wise for you to pursue this? I mean, let's. I, I mean, I literally had a discussion with a couple I was counseling. One of them was an Arminian. One of them was a Calvinist. And like, hey, it's not that you can't be married, but you have to think through. Let's move all the way over here when you have kids, and let's say, hey, husband's Arminian, wife is a Calvinist. Husband, are you going to be okay with your wife? Do like in homeschooling, talking about, you know, the sovereignty of God, not just in salvation, anything else, right? That's a practical implication that you, it would be very wise to think through before you project out like, you know, six, seven years and have a huge problem in your marriage. So it's not saying you can't do that, it's but you want to talk through that and go, okay, is it wise to do that? And so you, we can't have a rule that says, nope, you know, a, a Calvinist can never marry an Arminian. But that's an example of, okay, let's, let's apply biblical wisdom to that. Let's get, you know, a multitude of counselors. Let's have a discussion to see if that should be wise. 
And something we have to grasp is that calling someone to obedience of God's commands is not legalism. That's often the charge that will be leveled at you. Like if you say, you need to do this. Well, if it's based upon your own beliefs and preferences, yeah, don't say that. Don't say you must do this. But if you're saying what God's word says, like in the example of an unbeliever, hey, Christian, you ought not, you must not marry an unbeliever. That's not legalism. That's just being a Christian, right? We've kind of lost that in our day. So we have to have this right distinction of, hey, we can't let our preferences, our thoughts be on par with God's word. So we can't speak in absolutes when it comes to those things. But where God's word speaks in absolutes, we must speak in absolutes. And to do that is only saying, hey, I want you to be more like Christ, right? People miss that. That's that's the loving thing to do is actually to tell them that. So we have to be careful not to go beyond what God has written and either intentionally or accidentally place our preferences or, or our opinions upon the same level as the Word of God. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So there he's talking about submission to the Old Testament law as, as a requirement to be a Christian, but that's true in anything, that you can't submit yourself to a yoke of slavery going beyond what God has written. And so there's kind of one thing that you have to think through and clear up as we talk about that, as we um, you know, reconcile Scripture with Scripture. What we're not saying is that we then ignore God's commands to obey those that he's placed in authority over us. Right, because that could be where where you go with this is okay. Hey, I don't. I'm the Lord of my own conscience. So I don't have to obey anything that anybody else ever tells me. So what it means is that no human authority has the right to demand that we treat their commands like they come from the hand of God Himself. So a husband, a church leader, a civil magistrate can't require obedience from us with things that are contrary to what God's word has commanded or even things outside of the sphere that they have a right to command, right? Like God God has given certain sphere jurisdictions of authority, right? Like, you know, we have the church, we have the family, we have the civil magistrate. He's given certain responsibilities to each one. So the church doesn't have the right to command things that are given over to the state, right? And the state doesn't have the right to command things that are given over to the family. And again, we can look back over the last few years and start to see how those things are, are being affected, a wrong understanding of that. When people do that, I think Martin Luther is a wonderful example of this. He's standing before the Diet of Worms in 1521. They pile all his books out in front of him. He actually has to ask for 24 hours to to think about the decision of whether he'll recant. And we have to recognize at that time, pretty much everybody else that was in Luther's shoes before had been martyred. I mean, so Luther has to be standing there thinking, hey, that's probably where this is going, right? And what does Luther say? He says, Unless I'm convinced by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to do so goes against conscience, and it would be neither right nor safe. God, help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. A wonderful example of how do we respond when someone wants us to violate the truth of God's Word. And so what we've seen in this second paragraph is, is guarding against legalism, and then as we move to the third paragraph, we're going to really see how we're to guard against license. So here we're going to talk about 
what could be the corruption of this Christian liberty. I have two quotes here that talk about this distinction between liberty and license. Oswald Chambers said, Liberty means ability not to violate the law of God. License means personal insistence on doing what I like. So that's what most people, when you talk to most Christians out there, that's what they're going to mean when they talk about the liberty that they have. It's going to be a personal insistence on doing what I like, not doing what God has commanded. And John Blanchard says, liberty is not the same as license. To be free is, to be, is not to be free and easy. The Christian is not free to please himself, but to please God. So we have to make sure that we don't do this kind of swap in our brains between liberty and license. This paragraph reads, Those who use Christian liberty as an excuse to practice any sin or nurture any sinful desire pervert the main objective of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. And they completely destroy the purpose of Christian liberty. This purpose is that having been delivered from the hands of all our enemies, we may serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. So this paragraph really deals with two groups of people, at least. It, de- it deals with libertines and antinomians. And if you remember, we kind of talked about these two groups as we went through the book of Galatians. So antinomianism is the intentional or unintentional denying or setting aside of God's law and the life of a believer in the name of grace. So there, there's probably not people that would take on that, or not very many people anyway, that would take on the title of antinomian, right? It's not one of those things that most people know, hey, that's kind of bad. I don't want to, I don't want to be classified as that. But there's plenty of people that do that today, right? We have this whole gay Christian movement is really antinomianism, right? It's saying, hey, we're taking this part of God's word, his saying that doesn't apply anymore today. And the, 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 those examples could be multiplied, right? We see that in the pro-life movement, right? We, we don't have to require the civil magistrate to give equal justice to, the, to our preborn neighbors. That's a denying that God's law would demand and require that. Then libertinism is an extreme form of antinomianism that holds freedom from the law means a release from all moral restraints. So that's basically just cheap grace, right? That, hey, law, I mean, for the Christian, hey, I've been saved, and so I can basically go live however I want. God has paid for my sins. Galatians 5, 13. You are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so to use all those wonderful truths that we've heard about this freedom that we have in Christ to practice or nurture sin perverts the objective of the grace of the gospel. So what is the objective of the grace of the gospel? Well, it's to give forgiveness to sinners and then to call them to a life of Christ-likeness, right? And that, that's what many people in the professing church out there miss. Like, they'll have the WWJD bracelet, right? And it's like, well, how do we know what Jesus did? Well, he obeyed the law perfectly, so we just have to go look at the law to see what Jesus did. So if we want to know how to do what Jesus did, we just go look at his law word to find out, right? That there's this disconnect, right? That we create this, you know, fuzzy hippie Jesus that, oh, I want to do what this guy did, right? But we don't ever, they don't ever think about, well, it's not a mystical thing that I sit there with my bracelet and like I'm seeking to try to figure this out. Like, what did he do? What would he do? I can go look and see what he did. He lived and practiced God's law perfectly. 
And so there's not some kind of, um, you know, contradiction, some kind of dichotomy between being Christ-likeness and following God's law. They're, they're, they're two words to describe the same thing. And so if we do that, the confession says that this leads to the destruction of the individual and an annihilation of this doctrine that we've talking about of Christian liberty. What it does is it t- turns this wonderful and beautiful doctrine into a perverse and warped lie. The final sentence of this chapter, it echoes the prophecy of the coming of Christ by Zechariah recorded in Luke's gospel. It says Luke 1, verses 67 through 75. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he was visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy, um, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham and to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I think you know, this is one of those verses that probably gets read and reflected at around, you know, Christmas time. And I think there's a lot of Christians today, they, they love hey, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, being delivered, you know, from the wrath of God, those kind of things. But then when it gets to verses 74 and 75, that we might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There's a disconnect here that a key part of what it means for God to redeem us is us to live a holy and righteous life. And so, clearly, Christian liberty cannot, must not be used as a license for sin. But we talked about this a little bit earlier, but I just want to end looking at, okay, what do we do about those things, the, the, the adiaphora, the things indifferent, the things that either the Bible doesn't, um, condemn or, or doesn't necessarily say it's good, or we have freedom in Christ. Those things. How do we assess that? And so, um, th- I have a. This is, I think, a, a wonderful quote by a pastor named um, Jim Sevastio. And what I would like you to do is maybe maybe think through some recent choices that you've made related to things that would be considered indifferent, issues of Christian liberty. Because what he does is he lays out some good questions, good self-reflections to be able to ask based on Scripture about, hey, is this something that, that I should partake of? He says, several questions ought to be considered in the practical application of these doctrines. Is what I'm about to do a matter of faith? Will what I'm about to do bring me into bondage? Am I already under bondage? Can I live without it? Has this thing become an obsession with me? But what I'm about to do, put a stumbling block before one of my brothers and sisters. I mean, for the people that I've known that have struggled with issues related to this, man, these questions would really expose a lot of those problems, right? I mean, we see that, yes, we have freedom in Christ, but we're not to be controlled by anything, right? Like when, when everybody around you is saying, you know, brother, you maybe ought not to do this, and you're saying, I have freedom in Christ to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, you might ask yourself, man, am I, what, what's making me do that? Am I actually being controlled by this thing that I want to do? What's really driving me here? Maybe that's not it, but at least you have to be um, open to that. And then 
These questions and ones like it can help you not only determine whether you should engage in a certain activity, but maybe even when you should engage in it. Like, I have an example. So, I think if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that I recognize it. It's a Christian freedom. It's a matter of liberty of whether a Christian would partake of alcohol or not. But let's think about a particular context. Let's say, hey, we're going to be around an unbeliever who maybe has alcohol drunkenness in his family history. Maybe even someone that that drunkenness was associated with abuse in things in the family. Maybe you know, having a beer around that person without any kind of explanation, that would be a huge stumbling block for them in the gospel, right? And I'm not saying necessarily, hey, it would be a sin to do that, but I'm saying, man, you really need to think through carefully in that context, hey, would that be wise? Would that be something glorifying to God to be able to do that? Yes, there's a reality that people need to see, hey, there's liberty in Christ and things, right? But if that's the point you're always trying to prove rather than trying to love your neighbor, you're probably missing the mark. And so, I think a lot more could be said about many of the points, including that one. And I think specifically when we talk about issues of offer, I think those are good discussions to have, good discussions to have among husband and wife, good discussions to have among Christians in the church, right? To just be asking, okay, brother, sister, how do you see this? Help me think through this particular issue or that particular issue, right? Again, it's not that hey, you have to be bound by someone else's conscience in this, but we have to recognize, I mean, we all have blind spots. We all come with certain presuppositions and things, and it's really good to have those things checked by someone that doesn't share those same things and maybe can help us see, okay, brother, sister, in the Word of God, it may say, man, you ought not to watch that show. You know, it may or may not even be sin to do that, but I would tell, explain to me how, how that's wise, how, how that's going to be helpful for you to be able to do this thing or that thing. And so, I hope you can see, yes, Scripture is sufficient to be able to answer those things, those questions of Adiaphora, but I hope that you can take away, man, that this issue of Christian liberty is so much bigger and so much more glorious than trying to figure out whether you can have a beer or not or whether you can watch a certain movie or not. 